Good morning. Today we're talking about we believe in God the Father Almighty. So we started a new series starting last Sunday called Together We Believe. What do you believe? Why do you believe it? Last week we talked about we believe by faith. It's faith that begins our relationship with the Lord. It's faith that gives us uh, what we need to go to work in the morning. It's faith that teaches us, that helps us uh, trust by faith God's Word to help us know how we should live, how, how we should raise our family, uh, why we need to meet together as believers. And today is we believe in God the Father Almighty. Before we get started, uh, by the way, our two uh, Scripture passages where we'll focus this morning to help us see and learn about God the Father, two different places, Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 34, and then Matthew chapter 6, we'll look at the Lord's Prayer briefly. I want to make a quick plug as you find your Bibles. Um, last Sunday night, our family was totally overwhelmed and filled with gratitude. Uh, just the church showing love to us and basically gave us a good pounding uh, as we get ready to move into our house. So uh, those of you who don't know, we, we've been here now for I think almost 10, uh, 10 months, 10 and a half, somewhere in there. And uh, we're just now getting into a house and uh, also, we have a baby coming as well. So there's a few, just a few things going on for us. But I'll say this for me and Allison. It is, uh, well, for myself, the greatest, one of the greatest privileges of my entire life is to be the pastor here at this great church. And we love it. We're grateful. And I don't think I've been, um, this is the truth. And if not, Lord, I pray you strike me down right now on this stage. I'm serious. Uh, that I... I've never been so excited to go to church on Sundays as I am here. And I don't know if it's because I like you guys so much or if because um, I'm just growing as a, uh, in my walk with the Lord or the Lord continues to blow my mind. But I love coming to church. And um, sometimes the ministry, a lot of pastors can't always say that. That uh, just because it's it's difficult and you you fight all these uh, these spiritual warfare going on and the uh, invisible battle going on in your family and if you know if you're a pastor that you deal with that and then also as a church member you know that S Sunday morning is a tough time on the way to church you know you got kids falling out of the car like fighting throwing stuff and and life's tough on the way to the church house but hey you're here you made it. And God's about to speak and move, okay? So, the main th thought and truth that I want us to think about today to just marinate through this entire sermon is this. God is ultimately powerful, yet a profoundly personable Father. God is ultimately powerful, yet a profoundly personable Father. God the Father, Creator of heaven and earth. So as believers, as evangelical Christians that believe the Bible, we believe that God the Father is different than God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. So before we get into our main text, I'd like to just think about the Trinity, kind of just whet our appetite for thinking about God the Father, because it's no easy thing to think about. There's only one God... And He is revealed in three distinct persons. Okay? So the Godhead, we have one God, but He is revealed in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. 
Mark chapter 1, there is a, verses 10 and 11 is the baptism of Jesus. And in that verse, in those two verses, we see all three forms of the Godhead. And when Jesus came up out of the water, so there's Jesus, right? You see the Son. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, so there's the Son and the Holy Spirit, descending on him like a dove and a voice, and there's God the Father. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Okay, so there's three different persons, not just three different ways of looking at God, there's actually three different persons of God. Another verse that speaks of the Trinity, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, Paul writes, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, so there's the Son, the love of God, there's the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's the third. So there's one God who exists in three different persons. There's one God. Isaiah 45 says, And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. So there's one God in three persons. Now, if you're not confused already, it seems like there's a great contradiction going on, doesn't it? You're perplexed from the inside, possibly. At least that's how I have been all week studying this. It seems like there's a great contradiction. Well, for something to contradict, it must violate the law of non-contradiction. Which states that A cannot be A and non-A at the same time and in the same relationship. So I'm about to really confuse everybody. Example, if I say that the moon is made entirely of chocolate, but then also say that the moon is not made entirely of chocolate, I have contradicted myself. Right? But the statement, the moon looks like dark chocolate in the daytime, but it looks like white chocolate at night, does not contradict. It may sound ridiculous, but it does not necessarily contradict. So R.C. Sproul mentions Charles Dickens' famous line, It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. Well, it appears that that is a contradiction. But he avoids the contradiction because, in one sense, he means that it was the best of times. But in another sense, he meant that it was the worst of times. Everyone's confused? So it's not a contradiction for God to be both three and one. Here's why. Because he's not three and one in the same way. Got it? Students? Students? You ready? By the way, thank you. These guys were sitting here and a few others sitting up front. I challenged them last week to lead by example and to sit close to the front. And the, the cheap seats are in the back. So thank you for sitting up front. So, it's not a contradiction. Author Matt Perman writes, God is one and three at the same time, but not in the same way. Middle schoolers in the house, you understand that? You got it? My heart is heavy for middle school because that was a tough time in my life. Anybody else testify? Hey, middle schoolers, if you're in the house, hang in there. You're going to make it. You're going to make it, okay? I used to think if I can just make it to summer camp and there'll be other people that love Jesus and I'll be okay. And so I'll go to camp for that one week and then it gives me what I need to last a whole year and then go back to camp. So don't miss camp. You'll be in trouble. 
So, now that we all fully understand the Trinity, yeah, right, we're going to go to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, verse 22 through 34, is the famous sermon Paul, Paul gave to uh, the people there in Athens. And Athens was a city full of idols. In fact, in verse 16, it says that Paul was provoked. It means he was cut to the heart. He was broken because when he walked down the street, he saw idols in people's yards. He saw inscriptions written on people's walls. He saw posters. He saw all these temples built for false gods that were dead as a doornail and who could not eat. They could not help anybody. Yet, he saw boys and girls, women and children, grandma and grandpa, going to these false temples, paying all their money and resources for hopes that these false gods would reach out into their life and help them. You see, they believed a lie. They believed in all these false gods. And Paul was heartbroken because he knew that there's only one God. Isn't that our culture today? Filled with idols? Are you broken about it? So, let's, let's read verse 22. I have lost my place. Acts chapter 17, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. You see, it's not just okay to be religious. Religion does what for you? Absolutely nothing. Zilch. Religion is man's attempt to get to God, right? If you uh, pull together all the world religions... The main concept is they are trying to attain enlightenment. They are trying to earn their way to eternal life. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Christ came to us. Christ came to do what we could not do on our behalf. For as I passed along, Paul's talking, and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Okay, pause. This is great evangelism tactic. Paul began to observe the people. And he began to think about, how can I connect to them? How can I reach them? How can I find something to talk about to point them to Jesus? And that's what we should do. And so basically... Look, look what he says. What you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Wow. In other words, Paul is saying, Dear religious friends, there is a God you do not know. It's a pretty bold move because see, here in Athens is the 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 greatest philosophers and the greatest uh, religious leaders of the day, and they're, uh, they know everything, yet they're pretty open-minded. So, so open-minded that their brain falls out. And there they are, and Paul, he's pretty bold. He comes into town, he rolls into the hot spot to have debates, and he says, there is a God you do not know about. Pretty bold. And so then he, he says, but I know Him. We know Him, and He's changed our lives. And let's see what happens. 
the God who made the world and everything in it, Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hand, but nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So he says, we know him, and he's the most high God. The most high God. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that a cool phrase? To think about, if people ask you, who do you worship? What are you going to say? Facebook, little g, God? You know, you see all these famous athletes talk about how God is great and Jesus is awesome and all this stuff, but they always do a lowercase j or a lowercase g. It drives me crazy. Because it's not revering the king of all kings. Who do you worship? You worship a little Jesus you can put in your pocket? Or do you worship the King of all kings this morning? When you go to the grave and they're singing at your funeral, what are people going to say that you believed about God? Paul says, we know Him. He's the Most High God. He's the powerful, matchless Creator of the universe. Yahweh, Elohim, El Shaddai, Jehovah, Adonai. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe. Then he says, He's not far from you. In fact, He made from one man every nation of mankind live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet, He is actually not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And so Paul said, hey friends, there's a God you don't know about, but we know him. He's the creator of the whole universe. And by the way, you can know him. He's closer than you think. But first you need to repent. You need to seek him. You need to repent. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to... Think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Paul said, you can't make up this God. You can't conceive this God. This God is not made up in your own imagination. This God is the living God. He created you. And by the way, He doesn't need you. You need Him. The times vigorous God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, talking about Jesus, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. And so He says, Jesus is going to judge the world and you will be held accountable, friend. That's true for us today. You say, well, this is kind of a strange passage to illustrate God the Father. Yes, yes, it is. But it really illustrates who God the Father is. He created everything, and then did He back off and just let it be? No, a lot of people believe that. So God is ultimately powerful, yet profoundly personable. So let's, t- let's think about His power quickly. He can bench-press galaxies in his sleep, if he did sleep. And I, being a frail human with a finite mind, cannot explain the power of an infinite God. 
and therefore I'm not going to try. God is big, we are small. Got it? The American concept of God is a little cloudy in our culture. What do people think in our culture when they think about God? If you just went to interview random people on the streets and the restaurants today, many people would have a lot of interesting ideas. Maybe it's the Santa Claus God. You know, God's just there to give me what I want, to, to let me make my wish list, and just that's why He exists. Or what about the grandpa in the sky? You know, He created everything, and then He backs off and And Grandpa's there if you need him, but otherwise he won't meddle in your life. This is deism, and it is the twisted gospel of 2017. There's a book titled Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. Okay, this was written in 2005. This is a little little dated, but it was written by sociologists Christian Smith and Melinda Denton. And what they did is they interviewed 3,000 American teenagers. Okay? They interviewed them and asked them questions about what they believed. And here are the five primary religious beliefs common in those 3,000 teens. And I'd like to to read these off. Number one, a God exists. Now, a God, little g. A God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. But you can't know that God, okay? Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is a blatant heresy. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. This is the religion of the day. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And then the last one, main truth that they found in these 3,000 teenagers is that good people go to heaven when they die. Now, that's what they believe. That was in 2005. So the authors summarized this belief, this religion, this new religion of the day as moral therapeutic deism. And some of our founding fathers were deists. Did you know that? Thank God there were some Christians also. And our nation was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. So, do what you want to, for tomorrow we die. That's the religion of the day. I'll ask you a question. Where did those teenagers learn all that from? They learned it from mom and dad, probably. And from our culture. Where'd mom and dad learn it from? Probably grandma and grandpa and from our culture. Those teenagers were probably not discipled by mom and dad. And the reason they probably were not discipled by mom and dad because mom and dad were probably not discipled by grandpa and grandma. Preacher, are you saying that the reason my child is not walking with the Lord is because of me? No, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that if you teach your child how to walk with God, teach them the Bible, teach them how to walk in the Spirit, teach them how to rest crucified, teach them about taking up their cross and following the Lord, then the likelihood of them falling away is far less likely. 
God is not your genie in a bottle. He is the Lord of all. And the problem with all of this is that it has creaked into the church. I'm telling you, almost on, it's, in, it's in all of us. It has creeped into our lives. People are spending billions of dollars every day selling us stuff, making us think that life is all about us and how we feel. And that is total opposite to what the Bible teaches about Christianity. Now, the Lord will give you the desires of your heart. But it's not about that. When you love the Lord, your desires become like His desires. And He begins to give you desires for things that you never thought in your own strength, in your own mind, you would ever care about. Example. There are over 500 orphans in Hancock County. By the way, per capita, that's number one in Mississippi. And the Lord loves those kids without mom and dad just as much as He loves us. And I'm thankful that we have people in our church that has a heart for that and wants to do something about it. Now, the average person would say, I don't really care, not my problem. But when you're a Christian, you can't help but care about what God cares about. And when you're a believer and your life has been changed, it breaks your heart when you see people giving their lives to false gods, to things that will not satisfy, to giving their lives to things that are going to ultimately destroy them. So, God is Father. So, no matter what you heard, we're about to see what the Bible says about God the Father. So, as you turn to uh, Matthew... Matthew chapter 6. So what's the best way to learn about God the Father? Well, as I was studying and thinking about this, I started thinking, well, who knows, who knows God the Father more than anyone? And I, it's Jesus. Okay? And Jesus has been with God from before the earth was created. You see, Jesus spent all of eternity past in the presence of God. There was never a beginning of God, and there was never a beginning of Jesus. So they've always been together, along with the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 1, it says that Jesus was face to face with God. In John chapter 17, He said, Father, give me back the glory I had with you before the world began. There's one title for God that is repeated in the gospel 189 times. So if you haven't been paying attention, wake up. You need to get this. 124 of those times in the gospel of John alone, and that title for God is simply this. Father. Father. Let's say it together. Ready? One, two, three. Father. Father. So the primary way that Jesus thought about God the Father was as a father. And that's how he wanted to communicate it to us as well. He says many times throughout the Gospels, my father, our father, and just plain father. So let's see what he says. Matthew chapter 6, basically it's the Lord's Prayer. And he reveals to us how we should pray. Like a child should talk to his earthly father. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven. That word Father is in Aramaic. It means Abba. 
Abba, Father. Hallowed be your name. You see, if you respect God for who He is, you can't be flippant about His name. His name is holy. Your kingdom come. Verse 10. Your will be done. See, if you're caught up in what God's will is, you you don't really focus on what your will is. Verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. There you go. That contradicts the lifestyle of most Americans. We're so concerned about our daily, uh, not just our daily bread, but our daily wants and luxuries. Aren't you glad that God doesn't always give you what you want? We would be in trouble if God answered every one of our prayers how we think He should. I would have married the wrong lady from high school to college five different times. Many different ones. And I'm so grateful the Lord shut those things down. God works all things together for the good of those that love Him. If I gave my children everything they wanted when we passed through Walmart, we would walk out of the store with all kinds of junk we do not need. We would take the toy aisle number one, two, three, four, and five and have to have a Mack truck to get out of the parking lot. Parents, if we do not teach our children no when they are little, they will grow up thinking life is all about them and what they desire. And you will have a problem on your hands. Oh, come on, man. Let the kids have fun. We do have fun. We have a lot of fun. But there's other ways to have fun than just by giving your children stuff. If you always give them what they want, what they desire, it would be ingraining into their DNA that life is about them. Lately, we, I have been trying to teach my children personally. I know there's too much personal going on, but I'm just being real and honest. I've been, I've been hearing this phrase from my kiddos, and I know I said it when I was a child, but I don't want to. And so I have to say gently, very gently, well, it's not about what you want, but I don't want to. But it's not about what you want. See, life's not about you. And then they look at me like I'm half crazy. But I'm going to keep on day by day, week by week, until it gets ingrained into their skull. You say, well, that's not a very nice parent. The Lord told us in Deuteronomy how we should raise our children. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Are you doing that, parent? Are you doing that? Grandma, are you praying that for your grandchildren? Discipleship happens in the home. The family is more important than the church. The family is the first institution created by God. So goes the family, so goes the church, so goes the nation. So the solution, it's not even really what happens up here, although we hope that this impacts the home, but it's at your house when you decide if you're going to follow the Lord. It's what happens there that will change the world. And the good news is you get to explain to your children, hey, I know life's not about you, but guess what? You get to be a part of something far greater than yourself. 
You get to be a part of the global redemption plan. You get to be a part of the, the saints singing for the glory of God for all eternity. And by the way, the king of the universe knows your name. Isn't that awesome? You get to explain that to your children. So God the Father sent His one and only Son to this earth because He loved His wayward children. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus just gave us an example of how we need to pray. What our lives need to be about. What we need to be focused on. You know, it's rained all summer. I've mentioned that last week. I mean, it just sneak up on you kind of rain, and hit you in the face kind of rain. But fathers hold their children close when it's raining. Why? So the children can stay dry. And that's what Jesus did. When He took your scorn and my scorn and and our sin on the cross, He took it on Himself. The wrath of Almighty God the Father was laid on Jesus for our sins. The Old Testament says that God in no way can clear the guilty. Like something has to pay for it. That's why Jesus came and shed His blood. And what kind of Father sends His one and only Son to the earth? You think about comfort. You think about our rights. Think about Christ. He had all the luxuries. He, I mean, He was in heaven with God the Father. No pain, no mosquitoes, all kinds of food, no no tears. And he stepped out of the comforts and luxury of heaven to come to earth. To be born in a manger around animals that probably had fleas. To do everything a baby does. Cry and have gas and other things. And left all those comforts. Gave up his rights. Gave up every right that he had to come live a perfect life. And then to take our sin on the cross. To purchase eternal life. To purchase a relationship with God the Father. And by His stripes we were healed, and the punishment that was brought us peace was upon Him. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6 says that because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. So as New Testament evangelical Christian believers that believe in the Bible, we believe in God the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, and we're not going to be ashamed about it. We're going to be unapologetic about it. We're going to stand on His Word as a people of God. So, as we get ready to go into a time of response, the greatest hurdle that many people today will have in thinking about God the Father is the fact that that your earthly father has not been a very good dad. Or maybe you had a good dad. Maybe you know you had a hard-working dad that really tried to uh, 
do what's right and, and point you to God and make you and help you see that life's about the Lord. Maybe you did have that kind of dad. But regardless, there's no the best earthly father in comparison to who the Lord is, it's not even close. So I just I don't know what God's doing in you, but I sense that the Lord wants to do some healing right now in these next few moments. Because it's so easy just to assume that God the Father in heaven is like our earthly dad. And I just want to say, He's so much better than that. He is faithful. We're saying, great is thy faithfulness. And the Lord is faithful. And He will never, ever, ever let you down. And though your ship is rocking, though the boat is getting rocked, and water is spilling over into your boat... The Lord is in that boat with you. And He cares, and He's faithful, and He's with you, and He's going to be with you all the way to the end. And today, if you're not right with this God, friend, He's inviting you to come home. He's inviting you to come just as you are, and to repent, and to be restored, and to come back home. He's not going to yell at you or throw anything at you. He will take you just as you are and He will begin to clean you up, dust you off, and set you back on the right path. You see, God the Father wants to protect you. He does want to give you good things. And just as an earthly father wants to give his children good things, how much more does the God in heaven want to give His children great things? But at the end of the day, it's not about stuff and how we feel and our happiness and what makes us feel good. It's all about the King of Kings. So what is God leading you to do? What is He speaking to you about? Jesus said, My sheep, they hear My voice and they know it. And they follow it. And so the Lord's here. He is in the house. You better believe it. And He is speaking to the believers right now. He's nudging your heart. Maybe it was a scripture. Maybe it's something I didn't even say. That God just on His own spoke to you through the Word. You respond today. If you don't know how to respond, we'll be at the front to help you. I want to say this to our guests this morning. Then we'll we'll close. This God we're talking about has changed our lives. He has changed our lives. If I didn't believe in this God with all of my heart, I wouldn't be here. I'd be coaching football. What a waste of life that would have been for me. Now, if you're a football coach, that's not a knock against you. That's just a different calling, okay? But I'm speaking for all of our church members. We together are saying today that this God has changed our life. And we can testify and tell you that He is good and He is faithful, He's trustworthy, and He's big enough to deal with whatever issue you have going on. And sometimes He chooses to heal through medicine. Sometimes He chooses to heal supernaturally. And then sometimes He chooses to heal ultimately, take you home to be with Him. So right now, I believe He wants to heal broken hearts, And He wants to restore. Because that's what fathers do. 
They pursue their children when they're about to run in the street. When their child makes bad decisions, they pull them aside and explain to them why they don't need to go down that road. How will you respond right now as we get to, get ready to pray? Let's Let's pray.